Hello everybody, this is uh, the sixth sermon in our series about the covenants in the Bible. This sermon is based on Jeremiah 31 and is about the new covenant that is promised by God. I would like to begin with a question to get us thinking. What is the best way to deal with wrongdoing? Particularly wrongdoing that can lead to the harm of both the perpetrator and those around them. If a young child is about to put their fingers in an electric socket, is it better to say and do nothing, in case our chastisement hurts their feelings and makes them cry, or is it better to shout, pull them away and put them on the naughty step to reinforce the seriousness of the lesson? If we spot someone taking inappropriate photos near a school, is it better to do nothing because it doesn't really concern us, or is it better to call the police, give evidence at the trial, and then forgive that person once the pupils are safely out of their reach and they can get counselling in prison? Even though every ethical situation is different and complex, we know the answer to this question. By far, the most loving thing to do is to call the wrongdoing to account, to discipline the perpetrator, and then after repentance is shown, make steps to reconcile with them. To deal practically and justly with wrongdoing is always more loving to those involved than it is to stand back and do nothing. We know, though, from experience that this is difficult really difficult. The type of love required to see through a process of discipline and rehabilitation is the strongest love of all. In fact, only one type of love will do it. Covenantal love. The type of love we have been studying in this series. The type of love that God shows to us. A love that cares too much to just let us go. We should try to keep these illustrations in mind as we now explore this prophecy of Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, God reached the point where he realised that the most loving thing he could do for his people was to discipline them. He did it by allowing them to go into exile. At the time of Jeremiah, Israel were in crisis. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has besieged Jerusalem humiliated the nation and carried off many ordinary people into captivity. These were dark times. The suffering in the land was immense. Jeremiah himself was also suffering. He was imprisoned, not by Babylon, but by Zedekiah, the king of his own people. Why, at such a time as this, was Zedekiah going to such lengths to restrict Jeremiah? It was because Jeremiah was preaching a message that Zedekiah just did not want to hear. In chapter 28, we see that Jeremiah had a contemporary, a false prophet called Hananiah. Hananiah had sprung up with a sugary sweet message, telling the people exactly what they wanted to hear. He was going about the land declaring that those taken off into exile would soon be home. Within two years, God would deliver Israel from their trouble. Jeremiah, on the other hand, had been preaching the haunting truth. 
forget two years, this exile would last for 70. Hananiah's message was devoid of all moral content. There was no challenge to Israel's appalling behaviour that had caused this mess, and certainly no call to repentance. Jeremiah spoke the opposite. Israel had sinned. They had grievously broken God's law, and for that, as it had always been known, there would be consequences. However, Jeremiah did hold out hope. There might not be a quick fix to Israel's suffering in the immediate days ahead, but if they truly repented and sought the Lord, God would remember his covenant and restore them. But even with this caveat of hope, it's fair to say that Jeremiah's hard teaching was not as popular as the propaganda of Hananiah. So he was imprisoned by the king to shut him up. Unfortunately, it just shows us how much Israel had to learn. So like the parent with their child in our opening illustration, the context of this passage is God disciplining his beloved people for their bad behaviour. God is longing that Israel's eyes will be opened, that they will see the error of their ways, the harm they are causing, and return to him. But what is it that Israel have done? What has gone so wrong? To answer this, we need to briefly remind ourselves of a little bit of Israel's history. At the start of the Old Testament, God had chosen a people for himself. The family of Abraham had grown into the nation of Israel and God had a purpose for them. God was going to bless this people richly so they in turn could pass God's blessing on to all the nations around them. God's mission in this was to show his love to the whole world. However, for this plan to work, Israel had to follow the way of life that God had called them to. At the end of the book of the law, there was a covenant ceremony held, where Israel's role as God's people was formalised. They were told that if they obeyed God's commands, then the blessing promised would be realised, both for them and those around them. But if they disobeyed God's commands, there would be consequences. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 18. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. It is important we realise that Israel had always known that if they obeyed God's rule, they would enjoy the land he had given them. If they disobeyed it, they would be evicted. What this means is that Israel's experience of exile during the time of Jeremiah was not a mistake. It was not God being unfaithful to them either. Rather, it was God doing exactly what he said he would. 
After years of mercifully bearing with the people's sin, God was now fulfilling his word in Deuteronomy. Finally, enough was enough. It had been time for God to take action. Now, this is a rather hard message for us to take in. God has purposefully and personally allowed the suffering of his people at the hands of the Babylonians. We don't like to think of God behaving like that, but he did, and he does. God still teaches us lessons by allowing us to experience the consequences of our mistakes. But if you realise that God personally had allowed the exile to happen, then actually that makes room for hope. If God was the one in control of Israel's misfortunes, not the Babylonian army, then there was still hope for him to reverse them. As we shall see, that is Jeremiah's message. There is still time. If Israel sincerely repent, God will bless again in the future. The exile did not mean that God had stopped loving them, just that he was teaching them a lesson. Indeed, God's great love for Israel meant that judgment did not have to be the final word. But still we have not mentioned exactly what Israel had been up to to warrant such a strict act of discipline. Well, let's now make that clear. If you read Jeremiah 6, it becomes clear that Israel's sin was nothing short of apostasy, the abandonment of God, as evidenced by social and religious sins. They had oppressed the poor and corrupted justice. They had committed all sorts of acts of violence and sexual immorality. They'd fallen into idolatry. They'd even started sacrificing their own children to pagan gods. Their actions were damaging the most vulnerable in the land, as well as themselves. And Israel was certainly no longer blessing the nations around them, rather they were exploiting them. To make matters worse, they performed all this in the false confidence that because God had chosen them as his people, they were immune from retribution. Israel genuinely believed that no matter how badly they behaved, there was no need to repent because they were God's favourites. That is a very dangerous attitude indeed. It makes any amount of wrongdoing possible. It is also a very difficult attitude to change, for it stems from the hardest of hearts. This is why God's action in the exile was so severe. Throughout his book, Jeremiah hammers home the message to Israel, you have sinned. You have utterly ignored your covenant obligations. You have turned your backs on God. Now God is right to deal with this. He is right to discipline. He would be unloving to all those vulnerable people you are abusing if he didn't. He would be unloving to you too. This is deserved judgment. This is divine judgment. And if you don't repent, there will be more of it on the way. Jeremiah is a long book and most of it is pretty bleak, but I've tried hard to show you that this is not God just acting out of spite. He is still acting in love here and therefore there is always hope.
In Jeremiah 31, the wonderful chapter that we just read, the hope that has been there all along comes bubbling to the surface with an announcement of astonishing news. Jeremiah begins to see this deserved period of exile as the turning point in Israel's history. Indeed, after the exile would come a glorious new beginning. It's as if the nation had to die before being reborn. That full renewal could only come when all the old pretensions and false ideas had been swept away. Jeremiah foresees that after the exile, a remnant of the people return to the land. These will be the few faithful ones who did allow God's discipline to lead them to a place of repentance and faith. But here is the amazing bit. Jeremiah foresees that with that remnant, God is going to make a new covenant. We need to see here that in choosing to make a new covenant with his people, God has consciously decided to stick by them. Despite Israel's horrendous behaviour, he just will not let them go. Indeed, to those willing to learn from the lesson of the exile, he promises a flourishing future, a future of blessing. God is still keeping the promises he made to Abraham here. But at the same time, this new covenant needs to be exactly what it says it is. It needs to be new. Israel were human. They had been completely unable to keep the obligations of the last covenant, and in no time at all they would break this one too. Unless God makes some changes. And that is exactly what God promises to do. Let us read again verses 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. There are three new elements to this covenant that we need to notice. First, this new covenant is going to bring a new start. God promises he is going to forgive his people. He's going to forgive their appalling behaviour to such an extent he will no longer remember it. He will act towards them as if it never happened. Second, this new covenant is going to bring a new knowledge. Not the type of knowledge that you revise for in exams and make crib sheets for. Not the type of knowledge that academics study in books. This is personal knowledge, relational knowledge. This is knowledge in the way that I know my wife. It is deep and it's very personal. 
God says when this new covenant is made, his people will know him in a deeply intimate, deeply relational way. And this knowledge will be a great equaliser. From the religious expert, the church minister, the theologian, to the illiterate worker in the back pew, and the teenager in the youth club with learning difficulties, this knowledge will be the same. All God's people will have the direct access and the opportunity to know him, to truly know him. Third, this new covenant is going to bring a new heart. God's discipline in the exile was severe. 70 years of strife. But it was not a drop too much. All of it was necessary. Why? Because Israel's hearts had become rock hard in their sin. God promises that in the new covenant, his people will have a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And on that heart, God would write his law. What this means is that rather than God's people having to follow laws written down on tablets of stone, which they had consistently failed to do, from now on they would follow the inner motivation and conscience of their hearts and minds. In other words, they would keep God's law because now they would want to. They would know at the core of their being that they were God's privileged people and they would want to serve their God. These are three amazing promises. A new start, a new knowledge of God, a new heart for God. This is what God's new covenant would bring to that remnant of people who were humbly prepared to learn from their mistakes, repent from their sin and turn back to God. In the time of such darkness through which Jeremiah lived, this was extraordinarily good news. This was hope. This was the covenantal love of God shining through. As Christians, we know that this prophecy did indeed come true. Every word of this promise was fulfilled. Because after the exile came Jesus. Jesus was the one who made the new covenant between us and God. Through Jesus, we can know forgiveness for all our mistakes. Through his blood shed on the cross, we are granted a new start. Through Jesus, we have seen God. And again, through his death, we are now able to have direct access to God. What is more, in sending his spirit, Jesus has enabled us to know the mind and character and purposes of God like never before. We've been given a new knowledge. And through Jesus we've been granted a new heart. When we turn to him in repentance and faith, he floods our heart by his spirit. He makes our heart of stone and replaces it with his heart of flesh. A heart guided and inspired by the spirit. As Christians, we know what it is to be God's people. And with the Spirit's help, we can live in love. Love of God and neighbour, the fulfilment of the law. Jesus is the fulfilment of this promise in Jeremiah 31. We celebrate the new covenant every time we share the Lord's Supper with one another. How should we respond to this news?
Well, as we approach the Easter season, we should be ready again to give our thanks, praise and worship to Jesus. We should be ready to repent of our wrongdoing and ask for his forgiveness. And we should be ready to forgive the mistakes of others. It can be hard to discipline and then on confession to forgive and forget. Whether it be our child or a convicted criminal on the news. But that is what God does. And we have to start to try and do the same.